Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast. I'm Paul Chapman. Today I'm joined by Christy McWilliams, Global Head, Commodity and Energy Trade Sales and Client Management at City. Christine, thanks for joining us. Uh, th- thanks so much for having me. I sure appreciate being here. Your career has been focused on, or at least the last um, decade, I guess, with Citigroup has been focused on um, servicing clients' needs. What is unique about client needs um, from a financing perspective in the commodities sector? Yeah. So I, I think there's, I'll answer that two ways, both the, the, the qualitative and the quantitative, because I, I think that's appropriate for, for our, our sector. And on the, on the financing side, the combination of both secured and unsecured financing, which frankly is typical in the commodity space, really offers uh, someone a lot of opportunity to participate in a wide variety of facility types across a lot of jurisdictions and a lot of legal frameworks. And this combination of secured and unsecured financing, because it is viewed differently in this industry where it's it's perfectly acceptable uh, to have both secured and unsecured financing, it's actually a demonstration of rather smart financing. It's not an indicator of stress. It gives you um, the ability to look across a, a wide variety of, of products and bring those to the table. And that can be can be really fascinating. But Really, what I love most about commodities is that it's global. And so it's that global aspect that does come through in all the jurisdictions and the legal frameworks that we have to to take a look at that really, to me, is um, what is really unique about commodities. They they are literally everywhere. Everyone needs commodities. And these raw materials, they move around the globe. And it's just this beautiful beehive of activity around finding and storing and moving things around. And, and that means when you're involved in the industry, you're able to speak with people from everywhere and travel to lots of places and learn really fascinating things. And um, I, I've been to so many different countries thanks to this industry. And uh, the people that you meet and the kind of conversations that you have, um, even if you are talking about a deal the way someone might think about a deal or a construct, it's this really unique combination of some of the very smartest and still the very nicest people that are out there. And, and um, that means they're always progressing and they're always thinking of something new and they want to chat with you about it and see what you think. And, and so there's this great dialogue that happens and, and it, it, it just brings about um, some really sophisticated working capital conversations and some really great negotiations as well. So you really have to stay on your toes. Mm. It's been a, a decade since the global financial crisis, um, you know, which brought significant regulation for the banking sector as well as um, low interest rates. Um, how has that changed? How has the uh, client expectations changed over the last decade? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the commodity financing market certainly has changed over the last years, our, our ten years or so. Our, our clients' industry has changed, and, and we in banking have, have changed quite a lot. As you mentioned, the global Financial financial crisis in 08, 09 brought around um, new Basel regulations, which were shared in 09 as a result of that financial crisis. And they were intended to mitigate risk and required banks to maintain proper leverage ratios. And, and so it, it did change the banking landscape. And for Citi, we felt that this created a bit more of a level playing field globally in this area of financing. So we decided to take a look at the commodity financing space. And after having appropriate conversations, we did enter the space. And from my point of view, coming to the bank at that time, I saw a genuine benefit to clients in having 
a banking group that was comprised of different banks from different regions and representing a really balanced bank group um, um, as a commodity trader. So um, I really felt that it would allow a client to leverage networks and strengths of each bank. And, and so from Citi's perspective, we have a global network and footprint. And I thought that that would be a real advantage to, to clients and especially commodity clients, given how global they are. And I, I really felt that that we would be welcomed by clients in that context. And so over that time, the last 10 years or so that I've been with the bank, I've seen a lot of lessons learned from clients who experienced financial distress. And um, that's played into how we as a, as a banking, commodity banking industry have managed sp uh, specific collateral types or how we nuances of what we've, what we've uh, chosen to monitor or put into transactions and certainly regulatory requirements that banks have to adhere to around compliance with sanctions also create the need for more sophistication in terms of monitoring and reporting both collateral and transaction flows. And, and then just the changing environment of clients' businesses force us to adapt. As, as we said already, commodity traders are, are always looking for something that's, that's new and different where they might be able to provide a service. And we have to keep up with that. So from, if I just step back again to, to 08, 09, before I joined City, I was working in, in industry. And, and when I look back at what was happening before that time, it, it, it really was a very different environment for, for commodity players as well, just like it was for banks. And, and so we, we had started to see in the commodity industry much more activity where the large international integra vertically integrated players were starting to divest their midstream physical assets like pipelines and terminals. And they were also divesting their downstream assets like refineries and petrol stations. Hmm. And that provided a lot of opportunity for traders to gain economies of scale. So we saw over that time period a, a number of, of things, and it's just accelerated in the last 10 years. And so these traders have really gained some, some real uh, key logistics assets. We also saw in the last 10 years rapid growth in Chinese demand. We've seen up to this point a greater sense of globalization where people felt more connected globally, and that certainly um, helped the, the commodity sector, which is very global by its nature. Um, and competition increased as well, just, just, we could say tenfold for the commodity traders. They might say more than that, but it's, it's, it's quite a lot. So now when we look at the trader today, they're much more diversified within their value chain. They have a much more integrated business model than was the case ever before. And, and all of that happened because as these markets became more open, it really paved the way for a natural evolution of the physical commodity trader into a facilitator role. So as they purchase these physical assets, these midstream assets and these downstream assets, and even some upstream assets, then as a result, over the same time period, they became even more sophisticated risk managers. And these assets on their balance sheet were providing more control over commodity sourcing and distribution, and as well as another source of, of revenue. And as these physical traders um, brought value, they really began to see themselves as having a role from the production point at the well of the mine through the delivery to the end user. And uh, you know, they're not speculators. Mm. They're facilitators of matching supply and demand. And so from a banker's point of view, coming back to, to where I sit today, this created a, a number of commodity firms over time that are really good at investing in human and physical capital with a diversified model that's less likely to be vulnerable to shock events. It's, it's a more stable firm. And, 
And it's also changed the trader balance sheet. So, so it has enhanced the kinds of financing that they need. So in, in addition to support on individual commodity transactions, which are short term, they also have begun to need over the, the space of this, this huge span of time, longer term financings to suit, suit strategic term contracts and help in financing inventory that, they've, that they retain in storage. They, they want more counterparty risk mitigation options so they can control the size of the risk they're retaining on within their business. And, and all of that challenges the financiers, the bank, the banks to, to respond to that and, and to be equally nimble and bring forward things that make sense. So certainly back to your question around how banks have changed, we've really had to take a look at the product offerings that we have and how we put those together. So they're responsive to the industry, but, but well in line with sanctions and regulations and help clients match short and long-term exposures. And all of this, you know, while we're trying to navigate our own risk capital environment. Mm. So uh, it's, it continues to be challenging. You know, it has been a, a challenging decade from uh, many, many sources for the commodities world. So you actually have fewer, but more global banks involved in the financing of the commodity space alongside actually that consolidation of the traders as well. You know, you have these few very big players who, Thing you mentioned or alluded to, you know, are in some ways providing a an extension of banking services to their much smaller and more local and regionalized clients as well, right? They've they've the, the, those trading houses have started to offer a variety of products, you know, almost becoming mini merchant banks themselves to in some areas and to some clients. Yeah, I I think it is it is interesting to see this evolution, and I don't I don't think we're done yet. So it, it, commodity financing was the, the bread and butter of, of a few well-known banks that, that did it very well. And then uh, I think we've seen more banks have come into the space, even, even regional banks, um, even smaller regional banks that have, have come into the space to service a particular business that they felt that they knew well. And the last 10 years that have just provided so much growth and and um, the ability to to put financing in places I think has encouraged banks to do that so I we've seen a lot of banks in commodities that maybe typically haven't been um, now I think what we may see as you, as you note is we're seeing some some cons- I, I wouldn't I hesitate to use the word consolidation but we're seeing greater selectivity with banks looking at um, where they put their balance sheet and how they how they how they finance clients, and I think that's appropriate because in the commodity space, you really should understand your client's business, and you should understand the structures and the risks that you're taking, and that's the appropriate way to manage your business as a banker, so that you're not um, putting financing in a place where uh, where you you really don't understand. And so we, I think we may find banks that are are going to make. Um, some choices around where they want to place staff and where they want to develop staff to have that expertise. And, and within a bank, you have to have more than just the, the, the front office person. There's a whole cadre of folks that support you with risk and middle office and operations, and they have to be equally skilled or you cannot deliver for the client and you can't manage, you can't manage your risk appropriately and you can't manage against sanctions requirements and compliance appropriately. So there's a whole ecosystem that has to occur in a bank and it, 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 t- it takes investment. So you, you have to be willing to be there. 
Yes, and we're certainly in one of those moments when any weaknesses or, or structural uh, issues are being quickly exposed with the advent of COVID-19 and, you know, associated other uh, issues, you know, the oil, oil price collapse. You, you've mentioned or alluded to one there, potentially a, a change in the participants or at least some banks having to reconsider the risks that they're taking. What do you think are other long-term implications that you're seeing, um, you know, within the banking industry, but also with your clients as a result of COVID? Well, what's what's interesting this time is it, it's certainly very different from the financial crisis before. And the difference being that banks are strong and we intend to be a stabilizing force in the market. And I do think we've done that. And this is particularly important to commodity firms because of the way their financing looks within their business. They they do really rely on working capital financing, and we've been able to provide that. So um, I, I think that's probably the key difference from from the chair that I'm sitting in today is um, it's been been nice to be able to help clients. And so during the this pandemic and the crude price war, our first concern was for our clients and how do we help them and how do we help them to continue to to operate and the answer was really twofold. And one was providing liquidity and the other was supporting their continuity of operations. So how to get signatures and things like that. So now we're facing depressed demand and a potential second wave of infection. And we see that LATAM, LATAM is split, uh, is still in the midst of their COVID battle and the Southern states in the U S are seeing spikes of infection. So, um, there's, the confidence around a return to normal is really in doubt. And it's anyone's guess as to how the year will play out. So in that context, I, I think uh, there's, there's probably, I have, I have three thoughts around how this, this might affect uh, liquidity and financing. And, and the first is that uh, perhaps due in part or in whole from the depressed demand caused by COVID, We've seen challenges in the East with various bankruptcies, defaults, and some allegations of misdeeds. So the Hen Leong mm. allegations have put some on edge related to how commodity banks will view the market. Um, even so, for, from my perspective, I think it's unlikely that commodity banks will abandon structures such as transactionally secured financing and prepayment financing on the basis of these events alone. I, I do think these structures will continue to be the backbone of our commodity financing. So I, I think we'll, we'll get through um, that part of, uh, of, of evaluation of how we finance the market. If we do extend a travel ban due to a second wave, then due diligence on financed assets will likely have additional challenges. Um, we will need to get creative around how we monitor appropriately. Um, we could make changes to the kinds of warehouses or inventory sites that are acceptable, mm. um, but we will need to adapt, uh, at least in the short term. We will very likely need to uh, to adapt around due diligence. And the third thing that, that um, will impact liquidity is with the combination of depressed demand weighing on global markets and the challenges that I just mentioned, I... Um, as we as we've already mentioned, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see banks making choices regarding where they put their balance sheets, so that they're focusing on structures they know well, geographies or commodity types where they're comfortable, places where they feel they have the staff um, and the expertise to really support clients the way the way they need to. And so, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we if we saw some of that too. Yeah, but I I think 
as we look through continuity of business, they've, they've asked, you know, what, what should I do? Um, how, what should I focus on as we continue to move through the year? And, and given all of this uncertainty that we have weighing on us, you know, where, where should I focus? And, and I've really told people to do three things. And the first is to maintain a strong balance sheet. So we're, we are facing a potentially prolonged situation of market stress. It's unclear right now. So talk with your financing banks, ensure that you have access to diversified sets of working capital, and even pay up for financing if you need to, to allow yourself the freedom for opportunities that you haven't identified yet. And most definitely revisit your counterparty credit policies, determine if, uh, if you should be reviewing those limits, and if you should be doing so more often now. Some counterparties are going to suffer credit events and others will ask for extended payment terms. And they may ask for delayed delivery schedules due to excess inventory. And um, clients that have never sold receivables before may consider doing so this year. So, um, so maintain a strong balance sheet and, and do all of those things. And the second is ensure your processes and controls are working the way they're supposed to. Watch for unexpected delays in cargo. Ensure your models that you're using to run your business have the appropriate inputs for market risk management. And given many of us are still remote, make sure your network is secure because cybercrime may be more prevalent right now. Um, and the third thing is, is communicate continuously with your teams. Being remote is, is difficult. We're so used to in the trader business, just everyone sits together in a pool and we're just not working like that right now. So it's, it's hard to communicate too much. Yeah. And I think in that um, brief statement, you also highlight again, some of the uniqueness about this, this industry as well, right? It, it actually, um, you know, it, it is all based on communication, on the rapid flow of information globally. Um, and there's, you know, it, it is a very, it's quite a complex, or it is a very complex operation moving cargoes around the world um, and uh, or commodities around the world. And, um, you know, things, lots of things can go wrong, which again is kind of, I think, why ultimately there is such specialization in the commodities um, industry by, by financiers. Um, one of the, one of the things that struck me as you were talking, and I know we've spoken about this in the past, is a lot of I guess the issues we've seen come out of Asia. Some of the issues you just mentioned right there, like you know having communicating with your counterparties about um, processes and, and and so forth. All of these things, to me at least, would seem to be ripe for digitalization. You know, and perhaps this is, COVID is the trigger of um, pushing the industry you know, further down that road of um, automating uh, processes around sharing information on commodities and, and transactions. Yeah, ab absolutely. I, I, um, I think you're, you're spot on there. The, the, I think we really are now realizing that digital tools are not just a novelty and they're not just something for a quant desk. These are tools that are critical to everyone in order to be efficient and effective. And there really are a couple of themes that I'm seeing when we talk about um, moving towards more digital. And, and that is that we need to start to address what the barriers are to entry for these tools. Are those barriers IT budgets? Are they legal and local regulatory requirements? Are they changing people's perceptions about their daily work habits? Or is it changing internal compliance processes? And so we, we have to sort out these barriers so that we can continue to adopt these digital tools at a greater speed than what we've done before. 
Um, I, I also think we need to address the process of transition of how we transition as a whole, as an industry, because everyone's going to move at a different pace. And so we have to figure out how to support a more digital uh, digital work pattern while everyone moves um, at, at the pace that they, that they can within their own organization. And so how flexible these tools are with respect to an industry and transition will be key. So for example, can we do some parts of a transactionally secured financing on a digital platform and some not? So we, if you can do that, then it will be much easier um, to move towards digital and um, because not everyone will adopt at the same pace. And so we, we need to think about that. We, we also, as we've mentioned already, the tools have to work globally. Mm. Commodities and, and trade by its very nature is fundamentally global. And that means that anything that we adopt, it has to be scalable or it's not going to be, it's not going to work. Yeah. Is, is there a, um, you know, from the bank's uh, viewpoint, a unique opportunity to spearhead at least the digitalization of, of transaction records? You know, you, you, all the banks frequently work together on syndications. To You could build the platform that... Um, enables clients to access that um, finance? Does your industry or part of this sector have a unique opportunity to, to spearhead that digitalization? Yeah, absolutely. We, we need to and we, and we have. So we've been working for years to, put, to, to move towards digital within city with our own records and our own platforms. And I, I think um, just specifically in, in my part of the bank and Treasury and Trade Solutions, we are putting letters of credit on blockchain platforms. We're digitally onboarding clients, and we're also starting to do things um, like roadshows and client conversations much more virtually. Um, we've also made some um, strategic investments and partnerships in, in various digital solutions that I think um, will really uh, make sense and will really come to the fore. And we've also enjoyed a lot of collaboration with our clients as we've tried to figure out what new solutions would make sense and what would really improve the client side of the experience because it doesn't really work if we choose something and then the client, it's, it's not responsive to clients. So any digital solution that moves forward really has to be a joint effort of banks and clients together because those needs are, are different. They're, they're slightly different and you, you have to look at both. So, so um, I'll, I'll just mention that City Innovation Labs, uh, which had a 10-year anniversary uh, last year in, in 2019, they've really done a lot uh, to help us in this space. So um, in, in Treasury and Trade Solutions, where the commodity trade finance business sits, we last year we held through the Innovation Lab more than 200 workshops and 2,500 advisory sessions with clients in the labs as part of trying to come up with these new solutions and new, new developments. And so yeah. I, I do think that banks can play a leadership role. But I will say as well, again, you've got to involve your client because in the commodity industry in particular, um, around all of these dig digital solutions, one of the biggest things that clients uh, are concerned about or, or, or I'll say I, that I would be uh, wanting to keep an eye on if that's the that's the key thing we hear over and over, right? Is it secure, and and what information, and how much am I sharing? Absolutely, and so so certainly the the cyber crime aspect and having a secure network, but moreover, it, it's it's the second part of your comment where where we look at we want to at this we want to combine more visibility so that we can resist fraud, 
but at the same time, we want the privacy that allows for a bilateral transaction to take place um, and just those parties to see the relevant information. And so how do you combine those two? I, I, I want more people to see it and know what I'm doing, and yet I, I don't, um, there's aspects of it that I don't want everyone to see. So a digital solution for our industry and commodities really has to has to take that into account. And I think that's best done when you combine both clients and banks together for a solutioning process. Yeah. This may be an unfair question, but could you, I guess, I guess describe the Nirvana-like state once, you know, we have digitalized the, the, the commodity sector or, or aspects of it. What would be the, you know, can you, I guess, paint a picture of the benefits that would bring kind of what you see right now? Is that the opportunity that could, could, could uh, bring to the front? Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I know that's unfair, <laughs> but <I'm>, you know, <laughs> what, uh, yeah. what could I mean, it be? Yeah. Let, let, I'll give that a go. So I, I think Right now, when I look forward, what would really benefit um, all of us that are in the, the, the commodity industry, both as a commodity trader and as a, as a bank financing and supporting your client, is, uh, is a, a digital solution that allows everything to be online. So there's no paper. And what that implies is more than just um, the environmental footprint that goes along with that, which is certainly increasingly critical. But it also means that information can be shared instantaneously and that it can be preserved um, and, and that it can be time stamped. And so all of those things are critical if everything is digital. You're, you're not waiting on a, an original bill of lading to arrive anywhere. Things, things could move along at such, such a faster pace and with much more confidence and, and much more seamlessly in terms of the right people getting the right information and having confidence that all of the details are correct. And so what takes weeks today could happen in, in theory, it could happen in, in hours or, or an hour. And, and, um, and then what we would be, what we'd be focused on is the physical movement of goods from here to there to service the end user and not, um, and, and not some of the other aspects that currently take a lot of time and attention of both banks and traders. So I, I think we can get there. Mm. I, I think we're headed there now. Yeah, I think when you look, you know, coming back to COVID, what, what's you know just in other conversations that we've had as a business, I've had on on this um, on the show, is overnight people went to a digital world that were forced, you know, into a digital world where actually you weren't able to um, meet in person to hand over the paperwork, and you had to find other ways. And I think that's had a irrevocable push. Uh, to digitalize what is going to always be the most challenging aspect of the commodity space, which is, yeah, sure, right? In, in the US um, or Europe, you have a, a, all of the infrastructure required, both the, you know, uh, the physical infrastructure as well as the human capital requirements to digitalize, to understand, and to, to move that forwards. But that's not how commodities work. As you said, you know, right at the very start, you're dealing with every corner of the world um, and every um, level of industrialization, and I and I think that's where actually maybe COVID nineteen was the push that is going to drive change much more quickly than perhaps if we didn't have this pandemic. I I have to imagine that you're right. I've seen surveys and studies from a, a number of different organizations, and the trend line is the same. Uh, it, it's two or three times larger in terms of 
of companies expressing an interest in employing digital tools or expressing an interest in retaining and pushing even farther forward with, with digital solutions. And, and so I don't think we're going back. We're, we're definitely, we're definitely moving forward and we may even accelerate. So if you, when, when you think back to the barriers of entry, uh, what we've faced in terms of digital, I think the easiest one that people would, would, would always say is, oh, it, it, it's, I don't have the money. I, I'm, I, it's, I'm not budgeted for that. And I think what we're seeing is, is some of it was, um, it was about us. Mm. We had to be willing to adopt those tools into our daily processes and figure out with our colleagues in compliance and legal and, and all the other folks that work with us on our teams, how do we now handle things uh, in using this tool? And so some of the policies and processes that we've relied on, um, we will amend those now to adapt to this new situation. And now that we've seen that we can do it, no one wants to go back. Well, and I think there's an analogous um, example. Um, back before the global financial crisis, there was the role of the mid-marketer and, and the regulation pushed commodities further onto the exchanges. You had ICE come along, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think that role necessarily disappeared. Mm -hmm. What happened was that individuals who were able to add value to clients through consultation, you know, essentially transitioned into another form of role and you just removed the, the, the bit of the role that didn't require actually um, significant judgment or, um, you know, the clients ceased to value it because all of that information was now available online. And I think kind of what you're seeing perhaps is you're right. There is a huge human element to this, right? You, if you're worried that your role is, is, is I'm, I'm there to manage the relationship um, I do this of this part of this transaction. And if suddenly that gets digitalized, what happens to me? So I think it's quite natural that all of us, you know, are both excited, but also threatened by, um, by, by digitalization, I think. But what we, for the most part seen is when segments of the, of a process have become digitalized, that's allowed the individuals involved to go to a, a higher level of communication, consultation, a higher level of client service, mm -hmm. you know, and actually mm -hmm. overall, that means that it should be really empowering for both clients and for, for like in this case, the banks. So I, I think you're right in terms of, of how digital affects the person that, that goes to work every day and it, and it, how it affects the way a firm looks at recruiting staff and developing staff. It's, it is going to have an impact on, on us and a long-term impact on us and uh, a positive one. And I do think banking and commodities share a lot of common ground in the area of capital. We both have physical assets, but it's really the human element that sets a firm apart and can create alpha for the firm. And so when you look at the, the digital nature of things, I, I just, I can't help but go back and look at when I started my career. I, I worked for a natural gas pipeline company uh, it was my first job in the contracts department. And I recall a time when I needed to pull a contract. And when I went back into the records room and pulled the file, the contract was written on a four-by-four four cocktail napkin. And that just isn't how we work. It's just not how we work today. Yeah. Um, you know, today we have to be really comfortable, not just with digital tools and computers, but also with how to leverage that data and how to make that information work for us and for our clients. And so analytical skills and really enjoying 
the process of digging in to solve a puzzle that actually may have several right answers. Those are skills that really make the digital tools that we have talked about shine and take the digital tool, the human beyond the digital tool. So that they're not, one is not a replacement for the other. It just simply allows us to do more. And what I think is very interesting about this digital journey that we're on from the human side of it is it, is it as much as we may adopt digital tools to help us combat these issues of um, visibility, which will help with fraud and then and then still retain privacy. So that that nuanced balance that we talked about, I still think that communication skills will be even more key. How to connect with people in a human way when we're using these digital platforms, because developing trust in, is just absolutely critical in both banking and the commodity industries. And, and in fact, I don't think either industry can be successful without trust. Mm. And you get that from the human element of what we're doing. And so we, we really just have to challenge ourselves with how we develop that, that sort of context for ourselves and for those around us. And I think it's, I think we, all of us in this industry have to challenge ourselves to do four things. And one is we have to learn how to identify talent, which may not come from traditional areas. We need to be more open to moving people between commodities, um, making a nat gas trader, a metals trader, or maybe moving someone from um, the banking's independent risk function to a client facing function or from the middle office to a transactor, fu transactor function. And we may find that those people bring some really unique skills and perspectives when they do that move. Um, the second is we have to be able to move people around. So in addition to identifying people from non-traditional areas, we have to be able to then move the people around, as I just mentioned, so that they can curate a career that's really designed around learning. And that's motivating for the person, and it also brings value to the firm. I, I really think up or out is over. And I hope we can see that ambitiously learning is a valuable trait rather than just being ambitious. And equally so, um, when we look at how we value parts of the firm, I'd really like us to see us um, value all parts of the firm yep. and not just the front office. And I've, I've mentioned this already several times, some of the, the colleagues that I work with. And for me, there is no way I could bring the value of my firm to clients without some really talented and dedicated operations colleagues and legal colleagues that work with me every day. And, and I have no doubt it's the same with traders and their teams. It, it, you have to work together to solve the problem and get, get the work done. And so circling back to looking from non-traditional areas, you have to have diverse teams. They've got to come from more backgrounds, more perspectives, different points of view. And that builds this kind of team that is really ready to take on the challenges that we're facing in the current environment that is, is so flexible and so volatile and so unexpected and unpredictable. And, and the way to do that is with a really fantastic, diverse, motivated team. And, and that is not the digital tool. That's the team side of it, leveraging those digital tools. And that's when just really fantastic things happen. I, I couldn't agree more. So, and I think it's a really interesting anecdote, right? So think about the contract on the back of a restaurant napkin, right? <laughs> but how in some ways exclusive that is that, you know, that you, that means that really that's a contract that is um, between two individuals, you need their specialized knowledge of that meeting to be able to think about it even, 
right? Not let alone adjudicate on or act on it. Um, and, and, you know, and, and that's where you kind of have this, I think in some ways there's a democratization and empowering by digitalization that actually allows what, what really you sh we should be paying people for and rewarding them on is, is judgment. You know, you can't make good judgment calls if you don't have all the information. Um, and I think yeah, exactly as you say, like we want, you know, good teams have lots and lots of um, thoughts and ideas because they've got lots of all the, the relevant data available to them. And then you're making decisions about which course of action to have. And I, and I think about that napkin and, you know, you know, and, and, and how sort of excluding that type of way of doing business was back then and, and is now. Um, and I, and I certainly, you know, believe that digitalization is and will, um, I think can only enhance team performance. It's much easier to switch commodities. Um, if all of the information you need is readily at hand and searchable, um, you know, and you can apply a basic critical thinking from day one. Uh, absolutely. That, that's a really interesting perspective on that cocktail napkin. Uh, and I hadn't thought of it that way, but I, I have to agree that uh, the digital aspect of a, if, if a contract is digital instead of on a napkin, it is much more democratizing um, than, than that situation um, would play itself out with the, with the pen and the napkin. So um, it, it, is, it, it does allow people to leverage their mind and their skills and still bring their character to bear because, because I just, I just don't think we're going to lose the human element, the connection between people, but it is, it is going to be more and more about um, having a creative idea and being willing to share your idea and, and uh, collaborate with someone else and, and think it through and poke holes in it and, and start over again. And you do all of that when you have this digital foundation and, and that's at hand. And, mm. and then you, you, you really do create that rather than, as you say, uh, this idea of, of two people in a, in a corner table writing on a, a napkin with a pen. Aside from the fact that that, that just, that analogy just makes me cringe and laugh all at the same time. I, I can't imagine, um, trying to, to, there's, there's no terms and conditions. There's no, <laughs> it's just like, what else is in the napkin? Right. <laughs> just trying to enforce that. Just, I can't believe and, it. And and did the did the quality of the contract deteriorate the longer the dinner went on? Yeah, just um, I mean, <laughs> dare I say it? Uh, um, yeah, we've come a long way. Well, and I think and I think that's that that's been a bit of a theme of I guess of these podcasts so far is that you know there is a uniqueness about the commodity industry, and in some ways because again the the, the product we sell doesn't require much R and D. Um, it is all about service. It's all about um, making sure the thing is there at the time you say it's going to be there, reliability. And it's all about adding value through solving problems as opposed to, again, R&D. That means I think that actually this industry is primed you know, for making the kind of changes um, or, or, or taking advantage of the, um, you know, the, the advances in digitalization that are out there. Um, you know, because because again, sense matter in this industry. And if you can invest in something that makes you faster, quicker, cheaper than the competitor, um, that makes a difference. Um, so I do think we are, you know, we will see rapid change as we have in the last decade, as we as we go forward. I, I think you're right. It, it, the the guys and gals that work in commodities 
um, all of us together, you're not going to survive unless you're willing to try something new. It, it is an incredibly entrepreneurial industry. And, and so to that end, if, if a tool will work, if it will make things easier for me, if I can make money using it, I'm going to use it. And so if, if we think about going back to, to what would make a good digital tool global and scalable and um, preserves my confidentiality the way I need to, if I can put that to work, then I'm going to do it because the, the advantage of the commodity firm today, really, it really is around, in many ways, around logistics if you're mo moving physical. Um, and you'll, you'll take any, any edge that you can get because... Um, you know, again, going back to the napkin, the, the idea that, that information belongs only to the few, that's, that is rapidly disappearing if it's not gone already. So your advantage has to come from something yep. else. Um, I, I guess changing tack a little, in general, but also especially in events like this um, or these times of great change, great um, uncertainty, companies with strong values, stated values, and ES and associated ESG goals seem much more effective, um, you know, at, at navigating um, the, the change, the issues that are in front of us. Um, and I guess, you mm -hmm. know, it was, it was to look for your, I know you're passionate about this, um, as am I, um, you know, do you think there's a real link there? And, and can you sort of, why you think that it's associated? I, I do. I, I think in our industry, we have, we've always seen some aspects of, of ESG, if only to, to comply with, um, with emissions and the like. And we see that in shipping and, and in, uh, in uh, other areas of, of production and, and moving the commodity around. But I do think this is a moment where we will see real acceleration of ESG efforts and a real interest in doing so as a result of um, the recent market events. I, I think some of, some of what's happening also is that those of us that are working from home, we are also enjoying a lighter environmental footprint and, and the result of that, and we're seeing that we can do it. So, so once again, we're seeing we can do it, and, and there's a real conscious social awakening around the need for it. So focused efforts around ESG, I think, will be viewed increasingly as something that's very important by stakeholders. Uh, we're seeing that already in the inst institutional investor community. And while I, I'm not really clear yet um, on whether or not consumers are ready to pay up for things like hydrogen fuel, um, I do think there's an increasingly strong link between companies and the expectation that they operate within a socially responsible mandate and increasingly um, with a tie to a tangible measure. So we have seen growing investor demand for ESG investments, and there's been an increase in green social and sustainability bonds. bonds. And in treasury and trade solutions, um, we've seen discussions around how supply chain financing can support ESG efforts uh, uh, really have accelerated. So it's, it's become much more common, much more a, a conversation that clients are welcoming and wanting to have. Um, for example, in, in metals and, and mining, we have clients that are thinking about how they can support suppliers and ESG objectives in an appropriate way um, for smaller suppliers. And, and we have other parts of the commodity value chain looking equally hard at, at different ESG efforts and how they can tie financing into that. So 
I'd, I'd frame the challenge as one of selecting goals as a, as an organization. If you, if you haven't yet really embraced ESG or if you've done various things, but you, you want to get this started and, and want to take on more around ESG, I, I think people often say, I, I don't know what to choose. I don't know where to focus. Um, I don't know what the, the rankings or the ratings would be. And I would just encourage organizations to, to, um, just do a little bit of research. There's, there are a lot of choices. For example, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, their website offers goals and specific targets, which might provide some inspiration. Um, and you can also engage some help from a trusted partner. Uh, City has a sustainability and corporate transitions group that works with clients to provide all manner of advice, including support with integrating financing solutions that support ESG objectives. But overall, I'd just say get started. Um, it, even small things um, or things that seem small can actually be the start of a new cultural trend in an organization. Um, just at, at City, something, something simple that we do is we encourage people to volunteer and we're given a paid day of work to do it. And, and to support any cause that we like. So we reach out into our community and do that. And that's something that anyone can do. Um, with respect to city, we also have a, a $100 billion environmental finance goal, which is a commitment to finance and facilitate $100 billion over the next 10 years between 2014 and 2023 towards environmental solutions and activities that reduce the impact of climate change around the world. So, I mean, these, these are actions of firm that when your firm makes them, it makes you proud, it makes you proud to work there. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, speaking as a recruiter, um, you know, there is both, I guess, on an individual choice basis, you know, uh, we're increasingly see people, uh, ask us about, um, our clients, ESG, um, commitments and goals, but also more broadly, you know, in an industry where we've, we've both discussed, um, how really it comes down to talent, um, you know, that curiosity, that, that problem solving capabilities, that, you know, the judgment required. Um, you know, the, the commodity industry thrived when it was drawing from the top, you know, 10% of classes around the world because it was the exciting place to be in the, in the mid nineties, for example. Um, same as banking. And I think that there's real work to be done by the industry as a whole. Um, to recognize that actually, uh, you know, in order to attract the best and brightest at the moment, um, you know, the, the future classes of, 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 of the world's top schools, um, you do need to have stated ESG goals and you do need to follow through on them. Um, otherwise, you know, very quickly, um, you know, mining, energy, ag will, uh, will, will start suffering, you know, a longer term decline potentially. Yeah, I, I think that's right. You, as an organization, you, you have to, to look and see what your stakeholders find important. And stakeholders are increasingly saying that environmental, uh, social goals, governance goals are increasingly important. And I, I think our industry may say that we've done a, a pretty good job at governance, again, with compliance and regulation. That's part of, but the environment and the social part, we can do, we can do more. Everyone can do more to embrace those. And, and when you do that as an organization and you really select goals that are fit for purpose for the, for the industry that you work in and for the stakeholders and you really strive to achieve those things, then you're really, you are really building your brand. And as someone that works in an organization, 
every time that I go out, you know, I'm representing, I'm representing the brand. I, I am the brand when I, when I leave the house and I introduce myself and, and, you know, I work at city and I, I want that brand to, to reflect my value system of, of diversity and caring about the climate and caring about people. And it, it needs to, I think it's an increasing expectation of people. Yeah. A hundred percent agree. And I also think actually digitalization has an, a role to play again there, right? If we can determine the difference between a particular metal uh, and where, you know, uh, where it was dug and by whom it was dug out, you know, you can start actually being able to provide that, that choice to clients and in some ways decommodify commodities as well. And I do think, you know, you can't tell me that a Tesla buyer isn't going to have some level of concern over where and how the various um, metals that make up the batteries are, uh, are acquired. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It, there's, there's just such an increasing interconnectedness amongst everything that we do. And, and our expectations as, as people on the planet um, are high. And, and as organizations, we need, to, we need to rise to that standard. And we can. Absolutely. Well, it's been an absolute um, pleasure uh, talking. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I really uh, appreciate you coming on the uh, and talking with us. Um, you know, and and I look forward to tracking the uh, the changes that um, you know are coming down the uh, down the pike. You know, and, and hopefully we can reconnect uh, on an episode in a in a year or two and, and see uh, see see how prophetic we were. No, I, I, absolutely. This this is really the year. To, to write down your predictions and put them in an envelope, isn't it? It's, it's anybody's, it's, it's just a, a year like no other. And um, I, I really thank you for having me here. I really appreciate it. It's, I, I hope we look back and see that it was certainly a watershed year for many, many reasons. And that um, we, when we do look back, that we see that there was just a tremendous amount of progress we made across a lot of things. So, um, so let's hope that's the case. Absolutely. Let's hope. Well, thanks very much, Christine. And yeah, look forward to connecting again soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the HC Insider podcast. To find out more, go to hcinsider.global.